Those who study faith and culture and religion, uh, they analyze things and they identify trends. And one of the trends that they've noticed, particularly among the celebrity folks or people living in the West, and by the way, you and I live in the West, they've noticed a trend where people are saying, uh, I've become Buddhist or I'm following an Eastern religion or God because Buddhism or this Eastern religion is a religion of practice, but Christianity is a religion of belief. Now, I wonder where they got that from. Did they get it from us? Because they don't get it from Jesus. In fact, to follow Jesus is to believe at your core, believe at your core that people can grow, people can change, people can become. Notice one of the most famous teachings of Jesus. I mean, of course, he's impacted the world. And everybody has heard this. Even if you're not a Christian, you're here today. You've heard it said that uh, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But does anybody know what he said right before that? He said that you are, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. So notice that. If you hold to my teachings, you're my disciples. Then... You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We oftentimes think, well, let's cloister ourselves in an academic environment. Let's go to seminary, join a group or a class and learn a lot of information. When everything gets settled and you have this great realm of higher knowledge, then, then you become a disciple. And notice Jesus calls people to him. And remember, it's astonishing for the modern reader, but Jesus calls people that were fishing and doing things, casting their nets. He's like, come and follow me. And what did they do? They didn't go to a class or anything. They just dropped what they were doing and followed him. And the instruction there for us is an obvious one, although disruptive. It's, it's this, to follow Jesus means you believe that you can become, that you can change, that you can grow. And a lot of people get my age, they no longer believe that. But to follow Jesus is look to hear what he says and don't sit on it. Don't overanalyze it, but to begin to do something about it. And let me just put it this way because there's another trend here, but you'll deconstruct your faith. Your, your st your, the starting faith that you have won't be a staying faith if you don't start practicing what Jesus says. That, I'm pointing at you, but I'm pointing back at me as well. And I have found this through trial and error, pain and angst and joy. I found it to be true. What did, Jesus, what did you say? And then begin to put it in practice. It, I, I want to put it like this. I want to frame everything we're talking about today. Our confidence in his truth grows out of our practice of his way. You see, following Jesus, and let's show the world this, following Jesus is a religion of practice. And your confidence, and honestly, it's only going to grow in his truth to the extent that you practice his way. And the early church is an example for this in the how to and how not to. But following Jesus, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But before that, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So our faith is a, is a faith of practice. It sure ought to be. Another trend that those who study religion, faith, and culture have analyzed and identified is that we, have, we are living in a time where there's record levels of skepticism against organized religion. And listen, can I just say, I get that. I am intuitively, intuitively skeptical 
uh, my, myself. If you come to my house selling something like Encyclopedia Britannica's, I'm going to, number one, tell you I've got the internet. But I'm just going to be, uh, I'm going to be uh, skeptical of what you're trying to sell me. Doesn't it seem like everybody's got an angle, everybody's got an edge, everybody's got an ego, everybody's got an agenda. And it's just easy for us to insist on privacy and to push back when someone's trying to peddle something our way or someone can get powerful or they could profit off something. So I am with the masses of people. I get the record levels of skepticism against organized religion. But against that backdrop, I want to remind you or teach you, instruct you today that Jesus does have a way to organize his church. It's not organized, we said this last week, around bureaucracy or human control or power. It's organized around the spirit of Christ and people identifying their gifts and then using them what to, for the common good to serve other people. And you unleash that force of good in a local community in the world like people are drawn to that, aren't they? Like we're against organized religion. Nod your head. If you're against organized religion, you know, there's an old preacher dope, come, come to our church because if you're against organized religion, we're not that organized anyway. And that's certainly true of Fondren Church under my leadership. But listen, there's a way and Jesus gives us this way. And what he told the disciples became true when he left. You wait on the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to give you power. And, the, and you should bear the fruit of the Spirit, and then I'm going to give you the gifts of the Spirit. And I believe, and so, several of you emailed me or text me this week, I believe that everybody in Christ has a gift. I believe some of us have a couple of gifts. I think some of us have three gifts. I think if you have more than three gifts, you're really proud, and you're trying to be too much like Jesus, so stop it. And the rest of us don't want to be around in supremely gifted people. So just stop it with those multiple, multiple gifts. But I believe everybody has a gift. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to preach about these gifts. And by the way, let me show you two books I'm reading talking about or the skepticism against organized religion. These two are at the top of my summer reading list that begins in July, which was yesterday. Uh, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse of the Church by a woman I've really grown to respect. And then Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problems of Spiritual Abuse in the church. Church hurt is real. A spiritual authority and abuse is a very real thing and it needs to be addressed. And I want my mind and my pastor's heart to be trained uh, in what's happening. But amidst the uh, misorganization, misuse and abuse of power, um, which was Jesus prophesied about and told us about and warned us about that we see in our day that some of you uh, have experienced that I and others who lead here must guard against. Uh, Though we're skeptical about organization, there is a way to organize, and it's around these spiritual gifts. And so let me quickly review a little bit last week. Do you remember that we said if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 31, it's 31 verses long, and uh, the, kind of the, we encapsulate it with this idea, one body, many parts, everybody matters, everybody's needed. I asked you uh, to say that out loud with me last week. You did, a, you did a good job. Would you do it again? We don't have it on the screen, so you're at a disadvantage. But here's what we want to say. One body, many parts, everybody matters, everybody's needed. Can, you, can we say that together aloud? One body, many parts, everybody matters, everybody's needed. All right, so you can't read it off the screen. Got it? Ready? One body, many parts, everybody matters, everybody's needed. One more time. One body, many parts, everybody matters, everybody's needed. Imagine the kidney, your kidney, says to the body around you, it says, you know, the eyes and the hands and the ears and the hair gets all the attention, and I'm done. They get all the compliments and all the attention. I'm the kidney and I'm done being the kidney. I as the kidney will no longer serve the body. What's the body gonna say back to the kidney? 
No, no, no. We need you. Don't go. I know, I know you got two. We need you, kidneys. We need at least one of you. But we, we, uh, one of you can go. But uh, we, we need you, kidneys. Stick around. And that's what Paul is saying when he says one body, many parts. Everybody matters and everybody's needed. And if we're going to grow toward health, we'll be fleshing that out. You can feel it when you walk in the room. And listen, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, there's the way of Corinth and there's the way of the cross. There's the way of America, which we celebrate this weekend. There's the, the way of Jackson. There's the way of the culture, the modernity, the place and time and culture we live in. There's the way of this, but there's the way of the cross. And oftentimes, they stand in stark contrast. That's why, and look, we got a young church. I want all the young people especially to know if you're going to follow Jesus, you'll be an oddball. You'll feel like an alien in this world because there's a stark difference between the way of the cross and the way of our culture. And Corinth had this culture that said the head is Caesar. The head is the aristocracy. And, and other people, the poor and the lowly, they're less important. And Jesus comes along, and by the way, he changed the world. Jesus comes along and says, I am the head and everybody is of equal value. What if we had a church like that? That doesn't mean, we'll talk, we're going to talk about the gifts, but that doesn't mean you don't have leaders. That doesn't mean you'll have somebody that stands up on stage and points their finger and pontificates uh, from time to time. It doesn't, but it, it does mean, while they're different roles, it does mean they're all equal. What if we were a church where everybody matters and everybody's needed? And when one part is hurting, we went to them. Isn't that something you want to be a part of? Isn't that something you want to stick around uh, to? All right, so let's do this. What I want to do is I want to run the blitz today. I want to blitz through the spiritual gifts. I'm not going to touch all of them, and you're going to think I'm timid and weak. I'm not going to touch tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles or healing today. Not because I'm scared. I just don't have time, and it's July 4th weekend. Uh, we'll get to it eventually. I'm not going to touch those today. By the way, I do believe in them. I do believe in them. Some people don't. I've got friends that call them. They've gone to seminary. They're smart, maybe smarter than me. They refer to those four as the temporary sign gifts. And they believe, because of Paul's writing in the next chapter, that there's a, uh, these gifts have ceased, that they were used to validate the gospel then when the gospel was first going forth. They don't, the gospel doesn't need validated or authenticated today. So those gifts are no longer available. I do not believe that. I believe God gives healing and miracles today. I believe he gives tongues and interpretation of tongues. These are wonderful gifts. They're signed gifts, but I don't believe they're temporary. That's all I'm going to say about that. So here's our blitz, a brief description. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody today, even if you're on staff, uh, even if you're a, a crusty Christian and this stuff is old to you, I don't want it to be old and dry or old and dusty. You with me? So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's, I want you to ask as we walk through each of them, I want you to ask, might I have this gift? All right. The first one is the, oh, by the way, yeah. First Corinthians 12, one back to that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, this is my heart to you. I'm Barring from Paul, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. Brothers and sisters, he's saying, hey, we're a family. And as a family, I want us to be in this together. And brothers and sisters, we're the body of Christ. One body, many parts, everybody matters, everybody's needed. But I don't want you to be unaware. Now, that's a nice way to say it. In three other English translations of the Bible, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's very different if you go, hey, you're unaware. Hey, you're ignorant. One's a little stronger. So, Fonder Church, I want to say to you, I don't want you to be ignorant about these gifts. So, the first one is helps. If you have the gift of help, I, like I went to seminary to teach this kind of profound stuff. If you have the gift of helps, then you ask a question when you're in a meeting, when you're in a group. You ask the question, how can I help? And you love to help. This gift, I, I marvel at this gift. I love this gift. I don't necessarily long for it, but I want to be with people who have this gift. I hope that doesn't sound 
um, arrogant, but I just, I love this gift. This gift is someone who's behind the scenes and under the radar. This person uh, exemplified in scripture, there's many, 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 but I believe one person exemplified from old is Joshua. And Joshua, it, it look, read Exodus, Joshua is with Moses and there's a point where he says, hey, I'm gonna stand with you, I'm gonna fight with you and that, see that long hill up there? I'm gonna walk up that long hill with you. And that's what, having the spiritual gift of help is you feel called to come alongside someone and to further the work of the kingdom through that leader. Oftentimes a person who has the gift of help attaches themselves, not in a parasitic way, just the opposite, but they attach themselves to a leader that they feel God has his fingerprints on, a woman or man who's called to do something and they will come alongside and help that person. Under the radar, behind the scenes. Now, if you know the story of Joshua, um, I say this at a little bit of a risk, but the cool story about Joshua is he served uh, behind the scenes. He served as a helpmate to to Moses in Exodus in that story. But then later, later, he was the leader. Uh, he became the guy. And that's not to say that, you know, if you serve quietly, all of a sudden you'll be the, the, the leader. But uh, I do believe what Jesus taught later is true, that if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be entrusted with much. And so just, if you have this gift, you love to serve people. You, ha you're, you have a gentleness about you. You have a, humili a humility about you. And you play team ball. Praise God if you have the gift of health. I love to see people use this gift. It, it just advances the kingdom in such wonderful, humble, and lowly ways, but impactful ways. And we got to have people who have the gift of health. Think of Joshua, read Exodus. Another gift is the gift of hospitality. I might have misspoke last week uh, when I shared about this gift because I talked about how some of you have a disastrous home. You may not have the gift of hospitality. And some of you have a home that looks like a tornado came through and just not very welcoming. And then some of you have a nice home and you probably have the gift of hospitality. I was a bit in error. None of you corrected me, but I think the Holy Spirit did. So let me clarify, as I study this week, I want to present it a little differently than I did last week in a more ignorant way. But... If you have the gift of hospitality, it doesn't mean that your home is amazing. It doesn't mean that you cook gourmet meals and have fresh cut flowers and the dog is perfectly trained and everything around your home is elaborate. It could mean that, but it probably means that you elevate people feeling welcome than you do having a great looking house. And I have actually observed, that's why when the Spirit was convicting me, I'm like, you know, some of the people that have been most welcoming to me that have invited Susan and I in, that have helped us and you know, invited us into their abode. Have been, it hadn't been the greatest house in the world necessarily. It's just been they've wanted us to be there. They want us to find friendship and find a place. And we need the gift of hospitality. Now, there were in Corinth, there weren't a lot of hotels. I don't know if that surprises you. There were amazing uh, synagogues. And I've shown you the picture of the Agora and the theater and that seated 14,000 people. Amazing architecture in Corinth. But there weren't a lot of hotels now, you know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn. So that verse alone uh, lets us know there were hotels. That, but listen, there weren't a lot of hotels. Ho hotel staying wasn't a thing in Jackson. I think this is a good thing. They're tearing down hotels because they're super dilapidated and they're wanting churches to partner with law enforcement officials. We've been having some meetings about this to help the homeless and care for this, uh, the dire needs that we have in this great city of ours. But we got hotels all up and down the corridors, right? If you noticed in America, they're cluster hotels. Like they put a hotel 
You're like, oh, cool, there's a hotel. And then they put another one, then another one, then another one. And it's just a circle of hotels because we, man, a big part of our economy is storage, storing our stuff, and then hosting people for a couple of days. So we, when we think of hospitality, uh, we're called the hospitality state, but we think it's tourism and a whole industry. But in the biblical times, having the gift of hospitality is you wanted people to feel welcome in your home. Think of Martha. Remember Martha and Mary, and Martha was the one that really wanted Jesus uh, to be, now she got rebuked, but she wanted Jesus to feel welcome. And incidentally, I don't know if you know this, but Martha Stewart, uh, that's where she got her name from Martha in the Bible. I just made that up. Anyway, uh, another gift that we see in the scripture is the gift of shepherding. The gift of shepherding. A shepherd is someone who cares that other people are being fed and valued and instructed. And I, this is a gift, man, it's, it's similar to the word and different denominations uh, interpret this uh, differently. We could uh, gather the Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists right here on this corridor and debate the Greek words that are used for pastor, elder, apostle, teacher, shepherd, bishop, all these things. And there would be a variance of viewpoints. I think it's all great. I think all this diversity is wonderful for the body of Christ as long as we don't bite and devour one another. But the word shepherd, as I understand it, as I've studied, is similar to the word pastor. And have you noticed, even on a holiday Sunday, you can look around and you can realize intuitively that uh, we're too big a group for one pastor to pastor all the people. You know that, right? And I know that you care for me and you want me to have a life and you don't have unjust expectations on me to be at everything and to know everything about you and to shepherd everybody in God's flock called Fondren Church. You know that, right? So you give me slack in that. And here's what I love is that God has called up shepherds in our midst. Um, I don't know that I have this gift, but I know that God gives other people to give, uh, gives this gift to other people. And Here's what I love, and I want leaders to hear this, especially if you're young, the leader. I guess I've been pinpointing y'all lately, but Ezekiel 34 talks about um, the woes to the shepherds, the woes to the shepherds of Israel. When you see the word woe, it's never good. We don't use that word, but in the Bible, it's a, it's a prophetic kind of woe, woe to the shepherds of Israel. And it asks the question, hey, shepherds, aren't you supposed to be feeding the flock? And then it follows that up. It's a judgment question. He follows that up with this woe. He's like, you know, you're, um, you're not feeding the flock. You're not tending to, to them at all. You're not caring for their needs. You're eating the fat. You're wearing the wool and you're butchering the fattened animals. But he goes on to say, here's what you're not doing. As a shepherd, you should be strengthening the weak and binding up the injured and bringing back the stray and searching for the lost. That's what a shepherd does. And you're not doing any of those things. And Peter, I believe, had Ezekiel 34 in mind in 1 Peter 5 when he's writing to the church there in the first century. And he says, hey, shepherd the flock of God, but don't do it for sordid gain. I just quoted the King James Version. Don't do it for, uh, because you love to get rich off the backs of the people. That happened then and it happens now. I do need a private plane at some point. But don't, do, don't shepherd people to get rich and don't shepherd people to lord over them. If you serve like Jesus, even if you're on a stage, even if you're teaching people, if you're shepherding people, you are no better than them. And so I, I think he had that in mind of like lead well, shepherd well. I think of Matthew 9 where Jesus looks at the crowd. It says he was moved with compassion. In the Greek New Testament, it says deep in the bowels. The connotations are just a shot to the solar plexus. He was moved in a visceral way because they were what? They were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And the heart of a shepherd, listen, and by the way, if you have the gift of shepherding, it's not your job to do all those things but it, it, you have a heart to make sure those things are being done. And it's why 
our church, like many others that are growing, is, is, is revolves around small groups. Getting in a group is critical to our church for you to grow and be healthy as a believer and for us to be a healthy church. We have to call people into groups so that we can shepherd one another. And I love it when I see somebody um, moving or having a baby or experiencing a job promotion or something good in their life or having a, a need in their life and it's their group that comes around them. They're not waiting on the pastor or the staff of the church. We'll try to be there if we can, but their, their group rallied around them. I see, look, I see you doing that. And I, my prayer, I believe God ordains this, but in a group of a few or more, somebody has a heart for shepherding. Um, if that group's gonna grow and go, somebody's got a heart uh, for shepherding in that group. Another gift that God gives is the gift of encouragement. Oh, by the way, the shepherding gift, I'm identifying somebody that has it. Uh, Timothy is somebody that has uh, that shepherding gift that's, that's really good. Uh, encouragement. Uh, there's a guy, by the way, if you're an encourager, then here's what you do. You see the potential in people and you fan the flames of greatness. You see the potential and you fan the flames of greatness. Someone that would shrink back, you impart courage to them. Y'all know one of my favorite passages is Hebrews 3.13. Everybody should encourage each other. Encourage one another daily so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of us can go astray. All of us can lose heart. All of us can fall back. I guarantee you, I'm looking at some people today as I study the sea of faces. I don't know who, but I know that I'm looking at some people that are very discouraged. I know I'm looking at some people that are wanting to lose heart. I know I'm looking at some people that have drifted away and you're ready to quit. But the gift of encouragement is I see something in you. I see something great in you. And I'm going to call it out. I want to fan the flames of greatness in your life because I see something uh, in you. There's a guy in the New Testament named Joseph. There's multiple Josephs in the Bible. But there was a Joseph in the New Testament we get just a glimpse of. And Joseph got a new name. He got the new name Barnabas, which means literally son of encouragement. And he got this nickname, if you will, because he had such a gift of seeing the potential in others and calling out the greatness. In the New Testament, you'll see in the book of Acts, it gives us this narrative where, John, where, where Barnabas sees something in Paul which is pretty cool if you think about, right? Paul kind of had a mentor and Barnabas sees this. Now remember, before Paul was Paul, he was Saul and he was persecuting Christians. So a lot of people were terrified of Paul. So they were unsure of him and that, that can hurt your, if people are terrified of you, that could hurt your leadership, right? If people aren't sure of you, if they're running from you, it's hard to be a leader, isn't it? But Barnabas sees that and he says, hey, come with me to Antioch. And he took Paul under his wing. There's a point where we're introduced to another guy named John Mark who also wrote the Gospel of Mark. He wrote some of our Bible as Paul wrote, what, 14 letters of the New Testament. There's a guy named John Mark, and John Mark had failed so many times that people had given up on him. Who am I talking to right now? He had failed so many times that everybody had given up on him, but who saw something in him? Barnabas, the son of a He sees something in him, and he calls it out, and he fans the flames of potential greatness in John Mark's life. And lo and behold, there was one point where Paul and John Mark couldn't get along. They had a conflict, and they separated ways. So Barnabas, he had encouraged Paul, and he had encouraged John Mark, but Paul and John Mark were having problems. And they separate ways, and what is Barnabas? He goes with John Mark. And he says, everybody, Paul, you seem good, but everybody, people aren't as scared of you as much anymore. I'm going to go with John Mark because he needs to be lifted up because people who are overwhelmed with their failures, it could be you, need to know, need someone in their life to say, I see something in you because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a belief. 
It starts with the belief that you can grow, you can change, and you can become. No matter what you're going through right now, you can grow, you can change, and you can become as you follow Jesus. This gift of encouragement, I mean, I, I love it. And God has blessed our church. I, I could get emotional. But uh, God has given me a few people in my life in the midst of the times because I hate to, hate to admit this, but I get, I get more discouraged than I let on at times. And God has put people in this church for almost 12 years who see me and call out some things in me. And they'll bring me something, some small token of appreciation or something that I said in a sermon two or three years ago. They'll bring it up and talk about what it meant to them. And in essence, what they're saying is keep going. Keep going and don't quit. And the people who have the gift of encouragement bring that to us. God bless the Barnabases, and may we have more in our midst. Here's another gift. It's the gift of administration. These people love to plan. They love to set up order. They bring order out of chaos and this reflects God in Genesis 1 in creation something is chaotic there's somebody has a good idea somebody has a vision of something that could be but they don't have any systems they don't have any order they don't have any processes in place and this person loves to plan any of y'all in the room you love to plan and in fact you love to plan so much you love to plan other people's vacations I know who you are that's your idea of a vacation is planning someone else's vacation you love to plan and thank God uh, for these kind of people in our midst. Here's an example in the Bible, Jethro. We don't preach about Jethro enough, but if anybody's leading an organization, go read Exodus 18. Anybody um, overwhelmed? Anybody tired? Anybody fatigued? Anybody doing too much? Anybody worried about not having the proper systems in your life? Go read Exodus 18. I love this. Lauren led our team in this several months ago. But in Exodus 18, Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. And he says to him, hey, you ain't doing this right. He walks up to him and says, you're going to quit. There's some such beautiful expressions. I should put some on the screen, but it's July 4th weekend. But some beautiful expressions in Exodus 18. And he sees Moses is weary. He realizes he's doing too much. And Jethro comes along and says, um, here's, here's a new way to do it. Here's a, he set up some systems so that Moses could have a life. So that Moses wouldn't quit. That he wouldn't grow too weary. And that is a beautiful thing. Uh, administration is is needed and there can be a vision you can have leaders in place but you need someone to plan to create um, systems that help things go thank God for people who have the gift of administration another gift is the gift of leadership leadership is the, the one that if you have the gift of leadership it's the you have the ability to cast a vision and to enlist people to be a part of that you can get people on board to be a, a leader um, is, to, is to lead joyfully. In fact, I think one of the best examples that's inspired me through the years is Nehemiah. The character of Nehemiah, he learns that the beloved city of God, Jerusalem, is in ruins. The walls are down. And I love this. Don't forget this because this is a part of leadership. But it says he, he, he wept, he prayed, and he fasted. And if you're going to lead anything spiritually, if you're going to go repair something that's broken, your heart needs to be broken. And people who have the gift of leadership are broken over something. They, they say, I don't want this. This should not be the way that it is. This should not remain. What I see, this poverty, this injustice, uh, this place that doesn't have the gospel, 
of these people that are broken up, these races, these black people and white people that aren't getting along, these men and these women that are fighting over these gender wars, whatever it is, I see this and I see that it can be fixed, it can be repaired, it can be restored. And Nehemiah broke over it, he wept over it, he prayed over it, and then he went and he enlisted people. And here's the thing that I want to mention because this is a blitz, this is a brief tour through these gifts. I'm giving you an example of leadership of Nehemiah, but what I love about Nehemiah is I just was reminded of this week, is that Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And you know what Nehemiah did as a leader? If you have the gift of leadership, you get this. We don't. Other people don't, but you do. If you have a gift of leadership, you know that you just don't uh, enlist people to serve and to go rebuild a wall. And by, the, by the way, they did it in record time, 58 days. They got the wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. Everybody had a job. Everybody had an assignment. Everybody understood their assignment. People were motivated to do their assignment. They had people distracting them to not finish. Uh, they, had, they, they had a guy named Sanballat said, hey, get off that wall. And he's like, I'm not getting off this wall until the job is done. And if you have the gift of leadership, you can assign people. You rally people and you rebuild things. And that's what Nehemiah did. But you know what he did? He celebrated with his people. And leaders understand that because you know, if you have the gift of leadership people enjoy following you can I make it that simple if you have the gift of leadership they don't feel coerced they don't feel intimidated they want to be a part because they realize they're doing something bigger than them but they're also benefiting from doing something bigger than them they get to be a part of a mission and Nehemiah is like hey we we did this let's have a party hey leaders take time to celebrate with your people Take time to go out and have food and drink. Take time to sit in a circle and toast and love and hug and kiss. Give each other a holy kiss and celebrate the work of God. Don't just work, 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 work. It's a hard world. I see people who have the gift of leadership um, who lead well with this and remind us the joy because it's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. You'll be stronger. You can, you can face temptation better. You can be a better person if you have God's joy. And when that joy dis- dissipates, when your mood is straight up melancholy, it's hard to fight sin. It's hard to go on. Thank God for those who have the gift of leadership. Another gift that we see in the New Testament is the gift of evangelism. If you have the gift of evangelism, you love to listen to this. You love to care for and connect with people. I used to think the gift of evangelism was just like you love to go through the four spiritual laws with people. I've got a gospel track. You're walking across the street. I shout you down. I go through the track. The gift of evangelism, I used to think, was just this incredibly bold gift of proclamation. But I want to say the gift of evangelism, a fuller understanding, is you care for and connect with people. And we see this example of, of Andrew. Every time you see Andrew in the Gospels, he's always telling someone about Jesus. If you have the gift of evangelism, you're able to care for and connect with people and help them find and follow Jesus. Let me say, like some of these gifts... Everybody should do evangelism. Everybody should want other people to find and follow Jesus. But some of us have a special gift to be able uh, to do that. If you have the gift of evangelism, you would, get this, you would rather hang out with non-Christians than Christians. And that seems weird for the rest of us. But you're like, I want to break out of this holy huddle. It's been good, but I want to break out of this holy huddle because everybody knows Jesus. And I want to go to, I want to, go to talk to people who don't know Jesus. I want to engage in a spiritual conversation with them. This is the gift of evangelism. Next up, we see the gift of prophecy. Very misunderstood. As I understand the gift of prophecy, now there are prophets that are foretelling, but some of us think this gift is like the Christian version of a fortune cookie. And it's not. R.C. Sproul, anybody remember him? He, he says that the gift of prophecy is not foretelling, but it's forthtelling. It's not foretelling, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future, you know, on this date. That's not prophecy as it's given, assigned by the Holy Spirit as a New Testament gift, but it's 
It's forth telling. It's telling forth the truth of God. If you have a gift of prophecy, you, you want to bring truth into situations that are um, uncertain and where there's confusion and division and uh, clarity is needed. If you, if you have the gift of prophecy, let me just put it like this because I'm talking to some of you. If you have the gift of prophecy, you're not a warm and fuzzy person. You're, you're really not. Your favorite character on Sesame Street is Oscar the Grouch. And in the, in the Bible, listen, Isaiah the prophet is a great example. I just gave you one from, uh, you know, that he talked about. But uh, Isaiah in the Bible is one of these. But you bring truth and you care. You're, you're, you're broken by people living in lies and not having what they need and not knowing the truth and the way out. And so you, you want to bring truth. You're probably not a warm and fuzzy people, a person. Uh, in fact, Jesus said that the gift of prophecy, uh, I believe what he was teaching, is that it comes with a cost. He said, a prophet is not without honor in his own country. And so there's a cost to being a truth teller. Can I say that? If you have the gift of prophecy, it's a beautiful gift. Use it wisely. Use it with other people around you, but preach the truth and tell the truth. I have had people prophetically speak into my life, and I've needed it. And they have pointed out my sin and brought me out of a ditch before. So the gift of prophecy is very needed, and the world and the church needs it today. Uh, the, I, I believe that the people who have the gift of prophecy uh, meet someone who has the gift of mercy, and they get married. God is just funny like that. And that's the next gift that we want to talk about. Oh, by the way, gift of prophecy, Isaiah the prophet, John the Baptist is an example of that. The gift of mercy was someone who is moved to compassion. Um, all of us see the commercial, commercials, and they play the music. Uh, Sarah McLaughlin or whatever they're playing sing it for us they're singing that song and they're showing you and your heart breaks and I'm I'm not joking here because there's animals or children and there's nothing funny anymore about it and your heart breaks and you're just like oh and you know around our house like oh we're we're not gonna look the way out is just don't even look because you don't want to hurt you don't know that other people are hurting and that's the way most of us are but if you have the gift of mercy you're all of us if you're human you know, you're not so twisted up by sin. When you see something, you, all of us are moved in the moment. But if you have the gift of mercy, you're moved to action. And a great example of that is the story of the Good Samaritan. I know it's a parable, but we can pull out fictional to bring in truth, just as Jesus did. But the Good Samaritan, remember, there's a man. He's busted up on the side of the road. He's bleeding. He's naked. He's got nobody. He's in dire straits. And you see this around our town. Have you, have, you, have you looked around, Jackson? You see it here. Uh, one in the parking lot this morning, and our people were loving on somebody. But you see that in Jesus' story. The priest goes by. The religious man goes by and you know, doesn't do anything. The Levite goes by and doesn't do anything. But the good Samaritan, by the way, the person who's supposed to be the enemy, is the hero in Jesus' story. That messes you up about Jesus, doesn't it? Culturally, like he punctured people's prejudice. And he said, the hero is the, is the person you don't like. But the person you don't like is the one who did something about the problem. And that's the mercy gift. You're moved to action. Like all of us are moved during the commercial with the song. But if you have the mercy gift, you're moved to action. We've got to be fast. Real quick. Next gift is the gift of knowledge. The example would be Paul. Listen, we'll get there in the love chapter. And we're going to spend a lot of time there um, in 1 Corinthians 13 talking about love. But he talks about how knowledge puffs up. And that even he, Paul, by the way, had the gift of knowledge but he said that we just see uh, now dimly. It's like looking at a, a foggy mirror. We don't see everything now. We don't know everything. Can I just say to some of you, uh, leave room for mystery in your faith. 
leave room for uncertainty. You, you need to know the one, but you don't need to know everything. And some of you are not following the one because you've got to know everything. You'll never know the one because you've got to know everything. And can I just say, I say this with love, I feel bad for you. Like, I really feel bad for you. And I, don't, I, I mean, I, I pray that the enemy stronghold would loosen its grip on you, that you would find victory in knowing the one and not having to know everything. So knowledge is a funny gift like prophecy. We've got to be careful with it because knowledge builds up but knowledge puffs up. Love builds up, I'm sorry, but knowledge puffs up. So we have to be careful with this gift, but let's praise it because it is a gift to the body of Christ. You learn and you love books. You love learning, you love reading, you love going deeper, and we need you around here. We need to be more robust in our theology. We need to know, we need to have people who know things. My life is benefited by people who are smarter uh, than me. I love to be in the room in meetings with people uh, that are smarter than me. Hadn't found any yet on our founder church staff team, but hoping to one day, but just kidding, Laura McAlpin, Laura, oh, I'm looking at all y'all. But uh, knowledge is a wonderful gift. There's a point where Paul is talking to, to Timothy, one of his young pastors and shepherds, and he says to him, hey, this is at the end of his life, he's you know, in the prison, he's like, hey, bring to me the cloak, he's cold in jail, bring to me the parchment, bring to me my books. Paul was a learner. If, you're, if you have the gift of knowledge, you love books and you love to read. A couple more gifts as we begin to round out. It's the gift of faith. The gift of faith um, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young boys in the book of Daniel who were put in the fiery furnace. If you have the gift of faith, listen to me, you have confidence and trust in God's future plan and direction. Obstacles, if you have the gift of faith, here's the, I love this. If you have the gift of faith, obstacles energize you. Everybody else in the room says, if I see it, I believe it. And the person who has the gift of faith says, if I believe it, I'm going to see it. Come on now. Come on now. The gift of faith. And it's a good thing. Obstacles energize the person with the gift of faith. The gift of teaching um, is a gift that um, we see in the book of Acts with a couple. I want to show love I want, because, you know, there's debate with the Southern Baptist Convention that just got through and a lot of argument. We're non-denominational, so most of y'all left me out of the debate. But I do believe, if you want to know if this makes any difference in your life, I believe that men and women can teach, that the men and women ought to teach. And God gifts a couple called Aquila and Priscilla and Aquila in the New Testament, a husband-wife team, and they both had the gift of teaching. If you have the gift of teaching, you love to uh, expand on God's word, to expound on God's word. You love, you tremble at the word, you love the word. You believe God's word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, which is not just an Amy Grant song. That's in Psalm 119, verse 105 talking to my Amy Grant. Anybody got any Amy Grant fans? Anybody? No? Okay. Uh, you love the Word of God. It's part of you, and it's not just a public thing, but you love to see people sit under the Word of God, tremble at the Word of God, and you see that it can, it gives promises that we need to lay hold of. It can convict us of our sin and our righteousness and our judgment. It can make us better people. It can change us. It can grow us. It can help us become what God wants us to be. Priscilla and Aquila there. A couple of more. Haven't I already said that? The gift of intercession. This is the gift of prayer. How many have ever told someone, I'll pray for you, and then you didn't? Anybody? Raise your hand. Shouldn't we all have our hands up? I mean, a bunch of liars at 930. Uh, you ever told somebody, I'll pray for you, and then you didn't because you forgot? Or even worse, you're just a, a dastardly person, and you had no intention of praying for them, but you just, you just thought that's the cliche, that's what people say, and I'll just I'll pray, and you don't pray for them? If that's you, you, I don't think you're going to hell necessarily, but you don't have the gift of intercession. All right? If you say, I'm going to pray for you, and you don't pray for them, you don't have the gift of intercession. 
The gift of intercession is like Elijah. Elijah with a J. Elijah prayed for a prolonged period of time. If you have the gift of intercession, your heart is broken. When I joined staff with Campus Crusade for Christ in 1989, just graduated Mississippi State, I joined staff in San Bernardino, California at Lake Arrowhead Village. I went into the headquarters. I was overwhelmed by all the ministries of Campus Crusade for Christ. They call it crew now. I went into the prayer room, which was set up by the prayer ministry. And I remember thinking, I shouldn't admit this, but I remember thinking, there's a prayer ministry? Like, I'm going to move to Florida, and I'm going to reach college students. I'm going to have this ministry of evangelism and discipleship. And, uh, but, like, that's ministry, but there's a prayer ministry? And they began to explain to me that there's several people, like, they raise support, and they pray, and they pray for the world, and this is their room, and this is their ministry, and they just pray for people. I'm sure you've got to eat and sleep and do other things, but, like, their ministry is prayer. And can I just say I was convicted at that time because prayer is a ministry. Some of y'all, I'm trying not to look at you, but some of y'all, and they're mostly women. I think one man has snuck up in their group, but so, there's some people who come at 5 a.m. into this sanctuary and pray for revival in our land. They probably pray for you, and they probably pray for me. And prayer is an important ministry, and some of y'all have that gift. And thank God for the Elijahs in the room. Last one, or close to the last one. No, two, a few more. I keep saying a few more. Um, the gift of giving. Everybody's called to give. Everybody's called to give. But some of us have this in great measure. Lauren, as you and the team began to come up, I don't want to say this. This is an important gift. And sometimes we think, well, if I have the gift of giving, I have a lot of money. Can I just say, if you've been entrusted with the ability to make wealth, I would want you to see that Deuteronomy 8 as a gift from God. See that as a blessing from God's hands. But I would say to you, understand that with that comes a weight and comes a responsibility. I know a group of people that are pastoring in a community out west, and they've got a group of people that God has blessed with tremendous wealth, and they've all become reverse tithers where they live on 10 and give 90. You can imagine with that church the level, the volume of ministry that they're doing and carrying the gospel to the world, ministering to the sick, helping the homeless, starting churches. Oh, my goodness. But listen, when Jesus talked about money, he gave us an example of the widow who threw in some coins, and, and he said, as he was telling that story, she gave more than the rest of them. Now, Jesus is really either really bad at math or he's got a more important, le- uh, more important message to us. And I want you to receive that message that it's not the amount you give as much because some of y'all make a whole lot of money and some of you don't. But if you ever book, hit, hit your chest and go, I gave blank thousand to the church, the percentage of your gift is what really, really matters. But people who have the gift of giving, even people who have an ordinary income, have an extraordinary gift to see material resources uh, given away. Think of the widow. Think of the boy with the fish and the loaves who, who Jesus multiplied. Would you stand? And there's a gift of wisdom. If you have the gift of wisdom, people want to, people want to come to you for your problems. Uh, if, um, if you have this gift, Solomon had, had an opportunity to say, hey, God... God said to Solomon, what do you want? And he asked for wisdom to lead his people. If you have the gift of wisdom, you, want to, you have insight into problems. You're able to recognize what matters most and you're able to give that to others. And then closing out is the gift of serving. There's a woman named Dorcas. I mentioned her last Sunday. It says this in the book of Acts. She was always doing good and helping the poor. When you, who wants that on their tombstone? If you have the gift, now we're all called to serve. Everybody's called to serve. 
but some of us have a special gift. If you have the special gift of serving, you're always doing good and helping the poor. You're helping people that are outside. And what a wonderful thing. And I believe, by the way, saying what I just said, I believe this, if you're in Christ and you discover your gift and use it, I believe in essence, that's what's gonna be on your tombstone. If not literally, that's what people are gonna, if you know your gift and you use your gift, that's what people are gonna talk about, about your life. All right, I tried to do too much today. Father, thanks for this morning and I bless these tithes and offerings as our ushers come forward and we give before we go. I do pray that you would help us in all of these gifts. Lord, not to live as parasites. In biology, they, there's a name for people that just latch on and consume and live off the body and don't contribute. And it's called a parasite. And Lord, help us not to be parasites. Help us to give of our time, our energy, our resources, the talents that you've given us. Lord, uh, help us to be a, a religion, a faith where we practice and we practice our gifts and we're organized around our gifts. And people teach with that gift. People lead with the gift of leadership. People show compassion with the gift of mercy. People bring order out of chaos with the gift of administration. People help us tackle the wall and rebuild the wall and celebrate the goodness of God uh, with the gift of leadership. On and on and on. Help us in this. Lord, bless these tithes and offerings as we sing. In Jesus we pray. Amen.